<clears throat> All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you especially, Father, for spending the time with us and giving us this time to sit back and soak in the big picture instead of just surveying the bits and pieces of the Word. It's magnificent how you've been pulling it together. Thank you also for the concentration that you've given each of us as individuals so that we might grasp these higher level concepts those same concepts, by the way, we know that your Son, our Lord and Savior, had in mind 2,000 years ago when he hung on a cross for the joy set before him. He endured that thing. May we find encouragement in that always, especially as we enter into a new year. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification, Part 33. Uh, here's a nice quote from a gentleman by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. He did a nice uh, four-volume set on uh, the Book of Romans. And this is from that uh, series. And it's a good way to kick off New Year's Eve. If you will turn to the God of force and power and nature and acknowledge fully your creature subservience to him, you will find him immediately as the God of grace, coming to you to meet your every need. May that be a bit of our mantra, if there is such a thing, this upcoming year. Again, if you will turn to the God of force and power and nature and acknowledge fully your creature's subservience to him, you will find him immediately as the God of grace, coming to you to meet your every need need. Here are the core doctrines that we've been focusing on as of late. and He's really giving us this time, as I prayed earlier, to synthesize. And it's a gift. Anytime he gives us this extra time to synthesize, to take the things that we've been uh, learning for months now, uh, it's a grace gift. We have the gospel, salvation, spent quite a amount of time, 20 or so hours on that. Uh, positional sanctification has been in the forefront, the Holy Spirit's ministry at and after salvation, working with the Word, and then, of course, now experiential or progressive sanctification. Hold on a second, I just got a uh, request for an update, which I don't want to do in the middle of class, of course. So uh, this has been sort of the final frontier of our series the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. And what the Spirit's saying is, keep your minds elevated. Make sure that you keep the big picture in view. The gospel and sanctification, even when we're talking about experiential or after salvation, they're not separate concepts, folks. They're all one basic thing. It's God's will. He wants to sanctify us. That's His base desire. He positionally did it at salvation, but that same desire didn't flip a switch, and now it's a different desire. It's the same desire, and that's what you need to cling to this evening as we continue to do this wonderful work in synthesizing. On Tuesday, we began by reading Romans 1 together. You can never get bored of that. 
first focusing on the big picture that exists between the two halves of the whole chapter for uh, review up here on the board. And this is really watered down, but you'll get the gist. Romans 1, the first half, so to speak, verses 1 to 17, really cover the glory of salvation in spiritual life. And then you have, starting with verse 18 through 32, the tragedy of unbelief and spiritual death. So on one hand, Paul begins this wonderful epistle, the one that motivated Barnhouse to write such a, a statement that he did earlier that I showed you earlier, he begins with the good news um, of salvation and spiritual life. But then he also does that good work of highlighting the tragedy of unbelief, of rejection, of arrogance, and where that takes an individual, almost the anti-sanctification, if you would. We didn't need to get, we didn't get too far before the Spirit focused our attention on the big picture on Tuesday, beginning with some older principles from this series that we are on. For example, this was wedged into that series, the series we're still on, when uh, Evangelist Grande taught over Thanksgiving. The magnitude of the gap, the difference between a man's self-righteousness and God's righteousness is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Isaiah 55, 8, 9, 64, 6. So where does that leave man then? That piques our attention. Okay, but where does that leave man then? Well, that's precisely the question that the Lord God wants his creatures to ask. Well, where does that leave me then? That's the question that precedes salvation. That's the question that sort of tills the soil, makes the soil ready for the gospel seed, knowing that. In other words, God gives even unregenerate humans the ability to realize the following. And it has everything to do with His sovereignty. God's creatures are accountable to Him. Whether or not they like it, that's not the point. But God's creatures are accountable to Him. Everyone's judged. Everyone passes some form of judgment, whether they like it or not is not the issue, but God's creatures are accountable to Him. That is a universal fact, whether or not His creatures agree or confess with Him or not. Psalm 1, James 4.12, comparing that to 2 Samuel 24.12, God is sovereign, His creatures are accountable to Him. This is actually, as we've learned, the quote-unquote first part of the Gospel. It is truly good news that a person isn't held accountable to another person of the same kind. It, that's really good news. That we're not even held accountable, as far as God is concerned, to our own standards. <laughs> and certainly not other human beings' standards. It's only His standard, uh, His sovereignty in view except for the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're talking about people. But that is good news. If you've got the right perspective about such things, that's very good news. So go to Psalm 1.1. Uh, we'll just read that quickly to amplify the point on the board. And that's really what Paul was getting at 
in the second half of Romans that God's will is to sanctify us from faith to faith. That's how he ended uh, his discourse in the first half of Romans. But with free will, man can reject it. And it starts with their rejection of God as the sovereignty. Psalm 1.1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. and his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And it, in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So again, the point on the board really is amplified by that, that God's creatures are accountable to Him. All of them. That is a universal fact, whether or not His creatures agree, which is really just to confess, with Him or not. Go to James 4.10. James speaks to this in a slightly different angle. But he's saying essentially the same thing. It's essentially the same thing that Paul's really leveraging in his discourse in the second half of Romans 1 when he talks about the wrath of God. And God is righteous in that wrath. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judger, a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So it's a universal fact. Again, the point on the board, God's creatures are accountable to Him. That is a universal fact. And we're not to judge each other, either. David, being a man after God's own heart, knowing the point on the board intimately, said it humbly this way. Go to 2 Samuel 24.14. 2 Samuel 24.14. He had sinned in a, a great way. And when push came to shove, when he contemplated Who was going to judge him? Look at who he chose. And again, David was humble and a man after God's own heart. 2 Samuel 24, 14. 24, 14. So this is just an insight into David who the Holy Spirit has propped up very often as the picture of humility. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So that might be a different angle, but it's the exact same principle. David understood the sovereignty of God, 
And David understood the justice and the righteous and even the mercies of God. David wanted to be under God's sovereign judgment, not man's. And just reflecting, um, last evening, uh, Tammy Collins said it best at the Bible study. She reminded the group that it's really a misstatement to say, this is my life. That's when you become the sovereign, so to speak, in your own life. And she reminded us, you know, it's a misstatement to say. It's one thing colloquially to say, you know, it's my life. You know, I go home, that's my life. Fine. But it's not your life. Rather, we are much better off realizing that any life given is God's. Making our own lives, quote-unquote, in reality, His. And it's an astute thing to remember. It's an astute thing to say. She also added, you know, remember that He is our Redeemer. He purchased us after all. Go to 1 Peter 1.17. 1 Peter 1.17. And it's a wonderful thing to remember that we have been purchased. That's what it means to be redeemed. We were bought for a price. And that's something to remember. He even has a claim on our lives. 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Remember fear, respect, it's all kind of related. Uh, that's what happens when you understand the sovereignty of God. You fear Him. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So he shed his blood for you to purchase you. You have been redeemed. That makes you, guess what? His. You are his doulos. His slave. That's why Paul opens up the bond slave of Jesus Christ in his letters. So your life is his life. Remember that the next time you try to sanctify yourself. The fundamental point the Spirit's making here in light of the fact that we are now studying sanctification proper is up here in the board. And this has, again, everything to do with God's sovereignty. We are accountable to God in every way, beginning with our allegiance and including baseline things like morality. That's right. There is such a thing as a believer's morality, and we're accountable to God for it. That's why obedience has been coming up over and over again. So we are accountable to God in every way, beginning with our allegiance and including baseline things like Morality, what Paul gets into in the second half of Romans 1 is the perspective of those unwilling to accept these basic facts about our Creator. There are people, many of them, that say, I'm not accountable to God. I don't even believe in God. How can I be accountable to a God that, quote, doesn't exist? But you are. Whether you admit it or believe it or suppress it or not, he also, Paul also expounds upon the fruit of arrogance and the remaining 
bits of that chapter and on into chapters 3 and 4 even. Go to Romans 1.18 now. Romans 1.18 where I'm not going to read the whole thing with you again, but this gets us sort of situated again with the second half of Paul's discourse in Romans 1. Romans 1.18. So he just finished up with the glory of salvation and the spiritual life, sanctification from faith to faith, the power of God. We're going to get back to that, by the way, but the Spirit's trying to make a point here, a big picture point. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, active voice, the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the person who says there is no God or God is not my sovereign, they are without excuse. That's what the Word of God says. And that they have to actively suppress the fact that He is sovereign. So what the Spirit's trying to reveal to us is this up here on the board. More on God's sovereignty. Not only does the Lord claim sovereignty, it is His right to claim it, given who He is, the Creator. I mean, if you, you know, to use the potter and the clay example, if you're the potter, you take a clump of clay and you create a little figurine, I mean, are you going to sit there and say that that's sovereign over you? No, you're going to say, like Mr. Bill, I'm sovereign over you. Do you guys remember Mr. Bill? Oh, no. Right. And you can crush him at any point, which if you're a boy, you do frequently. But you get the point. The potter and the clay, you create something that's, you're the sovereign over that thing. And that's just an example that's in the Bible. But that's this angle as well as many angles into why God has the right, a rightful claim over his creatures. This is another one. We just looked at the fact that you're redeemed. Not only does the Lord claim sovereignty, it is his right to claim it, given who he is. For example, creator. So to put two and two together, if your life is his life, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. If your life is His life, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. God has given man the right, though, to reject this absolute truth, but man's will to dismiss it will never succeed. It cannot. It cannot. Man does not have the power to seize universal sovereignty. Think of Satan. I will be like the Most High. If Satan's will failed, and he was technically a greater creature than you and I in terms of abilities, even in station in many ways, if Satan's will failed, so will any attempt by man. This is what I love about that Greek word back now. Go to Romans 1.16. Go to Romans 1.16. I love what that Greek word for power reveals to us. The fact that 
This is God's power we're talking about. God saves us. God delivers us. God sanctifies us. It's from faith to faith that that movement even happens. It's by the power of God, even though man can try with his little p power. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I mentioned this on Tuesday, but up here on the board, just to refresh your memories, we had looked at this years ago now. I forget how long ago, but it's been a few years. Dunamis, that Greek word, power, it's explosive. It means ability to perform for the believer, power to achieve by applying the Lord's inherent abilities. It is needed in every scene of life to really grow in sanctification and prepare for heaven, which is glorification. Used 120 times in the New Testament, where we get the English word dynamite. That's what dunamis means. That's the power of God. It's like dynamite. You want to see yet another reason why God had to spend all that time recently on weak women? Here's a little more connective tissue for you. 2 Timothy 3.7, I didn't share this with you, but it's the same Greek word. Always learning and never able, dunamai. Same root as in Romans 1.16, means God-given power. Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what happens when you're in dysfunction junction. You're never able. That power source is depleted, so to speak, because that person, the weak woman, is still dependent on self-sanctification. And so their entire spiritual life is stunted to some degree. So I hope you see the point here. Relative to sanctification, it depends wholly upon the dynamic, dunamai, the dynamic power of the Lord God to deliver us. Any viewpoint or attempt to refute this is folly. All you have to do is think about God's power and your power. And it's folly. So, sanctification depends wholly upon the dynamic power of the Lord God to deliver us. Any viewpoint or attempt to refute this is folly. Here's an analogy for you. Possibly the shortest one I've ever given you. A full-grown man and a cockroach go into a bar and arm wrestle. The end. The end. Do I need to say anything? A fully grown man and a cockroach arm wrestle. Seriously. Self-sanctification is folly. It is much more stupid for man to propose he win a battle of wills with God than a cockroach proposing he can win an arm wrestling contest with a man. That's how stupid it is. It's more stupid for you. I think stupider is the actual correct word. Anybody in English? Yeah, I think it is. So I apologize. I guess I'm stupider than, than you, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for pointing that out. Right? It is much more, much stupider. It sounds so silly. For a man to propose he wins a battle of wills with God than a cockroach. A cockroach has a better chance at beating a man in an arm wrestling contest than you do with winning 
a test of wills with God. And that's what you're doing when you're trying to self-sanctify yourself. It's ridiculousness. Because he's infinitely powerful. There's a finite distance between the strength of a man and a cockroach. But it's an infinite distance between the power of man and the power of God. God's sanctifying power is omnipotent. Again, Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Up here on the board, more on sanctification. We cannot fully learn about sanctification without a proper understanding of the gospel, for they are essentially one and the same reality. God's promise to sanctify us is as good as complete the moment He saves us. Again, we cannot fully learn about sanctification without a proper understanding of the gospel, for they are essentially one in the same reality. God's promise to sanctify us is as good as complete the moment He saves us. And that's the big picture here, folks. That's what He wants you to cling to. He wants you to elevate your, your thinking, to look at the gospel and sanctification as one reality. It is one reality because God never fails. Once you're saved, you're His, and He promises to sanctify you. It's not like we can say, I know you promised, I know what you said, but I'm not going to do it. No, your heart has actually been changed. That's one of the things that we vetted out at the beginning of this series, remember? Because if your heart isn't changed, and you might end up being like the apostate who claimed salvation but then leaves, well, that proves that you were never saved. But if you are truly saved, then you are truly changed. And therefore, you have the power, the dunamis of God to sanctify you and to say that you can overpower it somehow or suggest that a saved person can't be sanctified is to call God a liar. So that's the big picture. They're one and the same. I mean, he says, great, you're saved, let's go. Now, there's more to the big picture, obviously, I'll give you another analogy. Last night I gave an example that might help some of you out as well. And I apologize, I'm a golfer, so it's, I apologize if you don't know anything about golf. Hopefully you know enough that this makes sense. Suppose you're invited to the PGA Championship next year. And I don't mean as a spectator with drinking beer. I mean, you're going to play. You're going to tee it up with the big guns. Now, God has already promised you that you will win the tournament. Now, you automatically go, this is ridiculous. God has already promised you that you will win the tournament. Now, the question is, how will that knowledge affect your game, your state of mind, your attitude over every shot? Are you going to swing more freely 
off of the first tee as compared to if he hadn't told you. If he said, hey, I'm just going to put you in the, in the tournament, you're going to be sitting it sideways, right? There's going to be a lot of four calling out there, right? <laughs> but suppose he guaranteed you, and God doesn't lie, that you will win the PGA Championship next year. Just show up and go through the motions. Well, since God told you, what's your swing going to be like? How much more free are you going to swing the club knowing that God's promise is real than if he hadn't told you that? That's how we are supposed to live. That's the freedom that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. You won. Enjoy the ride. You won the tournament already. Does it matter that it's not over yet? To God it doesn't because God's not bound by time. You already won. So just play the course. Compete by the rules. Don't be doing any foot wedging. Jim, no foot wedging. Well, that was on a route. Oh, it's uh, winter rules. Dude, it's August. Rolling it. You got to play by the rules, like Paul says. But nonetheless, you've already won. That's the freedom that we're supposed to live in. That's what it means that the righteous live by faith. Well, the golf course, the tournament's not over yet, is it? But I have faith that I've already won. And as long as I cling to that faith, then I can swing freely now. That's what it means to live the gospel reality. That's why the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, they're one reality. It's done. You've already won. You're going to win. Up here on the board, that's what it means to live by faith, and that's what the righteous do. Faith in God's promises are only undermined by the temptation to doubt them. You say, well, why doesn't it just happen then? Why doesn't it always happen like Jesus? Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was tempted, but he never took the bait. We, on the other hand, do it all day, every day. Well, at least I do. Aren't you glad I'm the one teaching you? Everybody's like, I don't hardly ever sin anymore. <laughs> Faith in God's promises are only undermined by the temptation to doubt them. Such is Satan's desire to sow doubt. But how am I going to win this tournament? I mean, there's, you know, there's Tiger Woods is over here, Rory McIlroy is over here. These guys are like all ripped up, and I'm like pot belly dead. I mean, how am I going to win this thing? Well, that's Satan saying, you're not going to win because look in the mirror. You're not going to win because the best score you ever shot was a buck 20. How are you going to magically win this thing? Well, if it was on my terms, I wouldn't win. But if God says I'm going to win, then I'm going to win. Satan says, you're not going to win. Satan says, look in the mirror. Look at the scorecards you have in your truck, all 50,000 of them that never go below 100. 
Look at all these things. Look at your golf spikes. They're plastic. Look at your golf clubs. They're, they're from Kmart. Look at your clothes, right? They're not wool, they're polyester. I don't mean to be insulting anybody, but this is the kind of garbage that Satan would throw in. You think anything's off limits? No way. No way. Such is Satan's desire to sow doubt. The fact remains that you are already a crowned victor in Christ. So play away. This is what Paul was always so very excited about. This reality. This is what you all ought to be always so very excited about too. You already won. So just play away. But this won't be your reality for very long. Even if you see it in this moment and are truly jazzed up about it. This won't be your reality if you constantly lose sight of the big picture, which is the gospel. I had, uh, I don't want to say who it is because it's personal, but I had someone who's been in the Word of God for well over 40 years who basically, you know, that was their, it's been their life, say to my face the other day, you know what, my problem was I lost sight of the gospel. I'm like, join the crowd, man. Seriously. It happens to, quote-unquote, the best of us. But if we lose sight of the gospel, then Satan's able to infiltrate. Satan's able to sow doubt. Because you're no longer seeing, you don't remember the dunamis that saved you. You don't remember that you're a victor in Christ already just because... You're still playing the course. You don't remember the end game. You don't remember the promises of God. And he distracts you. How easy it distracts you. Anybody tired here? You can raise Nobody's tired? Yeah, Scott. Scott's the only one working in Andrea. I mean, everybody in the middle is like, I'm on vacation. I'm not tired. Right? That's how he does. He wears you down. That's why the Bible says don't grow weary. He wears you down. And then he's got you in a weakened situation, a weakened state where then he starts throwing fiery darts, and then he starts animating his other agents, like, you know, other people, to antagonize you, and then also agree with the fiery darts that, yeah, you are a pot-bellied dad is never going to win this course, this tournament. is never going to happen. Look at you. I remember you when you were in high school and you were a, a drugged-out weirdo, Right? And you were antagonistic to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you said you didn't like, believe in God, and you were this kind of person, that kind of. That's the kind of garbage that Satan sows. If God wanted to win, you to win the PGA tournament with a putter alone, and one ball, an old feather ball from the 40s or something, you would win. Some of you are like, enough with the golf. Robin, I see you over there. Just just getting back. I'm bitter. Here's a question for you. Living the gospel reality. Ask yourself, where is the explosive power to live by faith found? In the gospel. Romans 1.16. Where's the explosive power to live by faith found? In the good news. 
Sanctification, then, is much more about living in a reality than merely doing things. One precedes the other. We talked about that last night as well. Things like unity. Not just getting... I mean, this is unity manifest, but we should be unified in our heads, in our hearts, when we're not here. I have brothers and sisters in you. I don't need to be with you. I don't need to be unified physically with you to, to live in that reality. I don't need to be with you all the time to be encouraged by you, by each other's faith. We don't have to be looking at each other to be encouraged by one another's faith, like Romans 1.12 says. Just knowing that we're unified in Christ, just knowing that we're going to spend eternity together in heaven, that's unity. And it's the same thing. This is about a reality. This is about living, which is much more than just doing life. Does that make sense? There's a difference between living and just doing life, going through the motions. Even if you're a religious person, just going through the motions. There's a much different reality, and that's what the Spirit's saying. And it starts with the gospel, from faith to faith. And that's what he's trying to say. He's elevate your thinking. Keep elevating your thinking. Don't carve this up into little doctrines. And it's all these like little phases. No, this is a real. This is one pure reality. Sanctification then is much more about living in a reality than merely doing things. One precedes the other. The most exciting thing you've ever learned in life and ever will, frankly, is the gospel. Amen. It's the most exciting thing that you'll ever learn. It's also the most powerful thing you've ever learned. The gospel is so full of power that it energizes the humble believer's life in every way. Scotty brought this up last night. You know, it doesn't matter how you're called, where you're called, what your job is, what your life is, what your marital status is, what it's not, what it's this, what's that. It doesn't matter. Living the gospel reality is so full of power that it energizes every aspect of your life. That's what it means to be sanctified. Sound familiar? Look at Paul. I mean, he was the epitome of this thing. His whole life was dominated by the gospel. Not just delivering it. Living it. Suffering and bringing glory to God because of it. That's what it means to live in it. And he, like Jesus, had a joy set before him. I mean, most of us, after the first attempt on our lives, would have quit. Not Paul. He's like, ta-da, I'm alive. <laughs> I have to be in stoned, right? And he goes right away. It's the cra- craziest thing. Probably hobbling and kids caved in. He's like, let's do this thing. God says I'm going to win. I'm winning the PGA Championship. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's keep swinging, right? No, he's swinging cockeyed, but he's going to win. And he won. Fight the good fight. Finish the course. Sound familiar? That's Paul. What about this? He says, I don't even care. For I determined nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't really want to celebrate anything else. I don't want to celebrate this thing or that thing or that person or this person i really just want to celebrate jesus christ and if what i'm doing doesn't celebrate jesus christ somehow some way then i'm really not interested that's what he's saying 
And if you understand the value, the power, the dunamis of the gospel in your life, that's you too. That's you too. I mean, everything that you do. Whatever you're doing, whatever you did today, whatever you do tomorrow, the more you realize and live in the gospel reality, the more your attitude will be like this. You're going to walk through life and go, does any of this even matter? No, seriously? Does any of this even matter? No. So what am I doing? I just want to know about Christ and Him crucified. Why would Paul keep saying things like that? It seems so extreme, doesn't it? I mean, Paul would have come off, especially nowadays, as an extremist. But... It's because he truly understood what really matters in life. And how many of us can say that? I'm not saying, I'm not trying to pick on anyone in particular, but, you know, ask yourself, am I truly living, do I truly understand what really matters in life? Am I living that thing? Is it just an academic thing? Do I say, oh, well, it's Jesus Of course, that's the right thing to say. But do you live that thing? Do you live in that reality? Is that, does that energize you every step of your life? Or are you too distracted? So Paul was like that because he truly understood what really matters in life and that the only way a person will continue to be sanctified is through the power of God. And that's not a disjoint reality from the gospel proper. It is a pillar of the good news. Sanctification is part of the gospel. It is part of the good news. It would not be very good news to say, hey, I'm just going to leave you here with no grace whatsoever. I mean, we could be grateful, but that'd be a whole different reality, wouldn't it? Kind of hard to swing freely when we've got no, no promises and no grace coming our way to finish the course. And he didn't do that. So sanctification and the gospel, they're one thing. And go to Romans 1.16 again. That's all he's saying, folks. That's why we can spend, I mean, honestly, I could spend another few months on just these two verses. I mean, that's not what he has planned, but we could. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now back to our previous principle then from November 15th, up here in the board, titled Grace Realities. Salvation and sanctification are simultaneously awarded as realities. In other words, if a person is saved, they are sanctified positionally, and guaranteed sanctification experientially. Now, there are gradients of it, but God promises to do it. To God, these are simultaneous realities. Some of you might be questioning then, then why do I not feel like I'm being sanctified? I mean, I've been at this for a while now. Why do I not feel like I'm being sanctified then? I mean, it sounds great on paper, but why do I not feel like I'm sanctified? What's going on? Well, think of the golfing analogy. It's because you have fallen prey to the temptation to doubt God's promises. 
Now, relative to that, if you've lost sight of the gospel, you've lost sight of the victory. In other words, you forgot that God promises that you've already won. So you're all uptight. And what do we do when we're uptight? We try to do things our own way. And the more uptight we get, the more we try to do things our own way. Why? Because we're control freaks. I don't trust God's promises. I guess I've got to do it on my own. So if you've lost sight of the gospel, you've lost sight of the victory. And that's the importance of getting the gospel right. If you understand that part of the good news, a fundamental facet of the good news, is sanctification then you're less likely to lose sight of the gospel. You're more likely to live in the freedom that Christ set you free to live in. You're more likely to remember the victory. You're more likely to remember all the promises of God. That's how important the gospel is. That's why we can't cheapen it, lessen it. All those lessons we learned for 20-something hours. If we diminish it somehow, if we water it down to make it accommodating somehow, then we leave out and therefore end up with insecurities and anxieties and frustration after salvation. We might get saved, but because we have a perverted viewpoint of the fullness of the gospel, that somehow sanctification is a separate issue, then we lose sight of the power of God. We lose sight of the victory. We think we have to what, chase a victory now after salvation? No, the victory's done. So if you've lost sight of the gospel, you've lost sight of the victory. Satan's strategy is to distract all humans from the gospel. Using that word, captivating, from 2 Timothy 3.6, instilling a bondage in them that shouldn't exist. There's no reason for a saved person to ever feel like they're in bondage. You've been set free. You've been purchased. We just saw that in 1 Peter. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's what guarantees your victory. But if you lose sight of that, you don't realize that sanctification truly is part of the good news, then you're not going to live in the gospel reality because you have some other gospel. For we believers... He uses religion to sow doubt, all sorts of it. Most religions are based on the same religions in ancient times that Paul and the other apostles fought tooth and nail over. Arguably the most identifiable one in the Bible is the Judaizers, which was really salvation and sanctification by works. I mean, how often do we see that? Might we rightly conclude that the very same religion, just by different names and even maybe denominations, still exists today. Sanctification, salvation by works. Doesn't that still exist, like, full-blown in religion? Of course it does. And that's why people, some of those people aren't even saved in the first place. And the ones that are lucky enough to be saved, they might not understand the first thing about sanctification. They may not understand the first thing about sanctification because their religion is telling them they have to do all the work. Go to Galatians 3.3. Galatians 3.3. I mean, we learned 
heck, even at salvation, the, the, the very acts of believing in repentance are gifts from God. Those aren't human works. Those are gifts from God. God sees a humble heart and quickens these things to individuals. says, you know what? I see your heart. You're open to truth. I'm going to give you repentance, belief, faith that saves. These are all grace gifts, folks. We didn't do anything. So as Paul would say in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, having been saved, are now being perfected by the flesh? Is this what you're proposing? And that's what Satan prompts you to believe. That you have some part in sanctifying yourself. But we started off class with that. It's not your job to sanctify you. It's not even your life to sanctify. It's his life. He purchased you. He says, you're my slave. Do as I say. Be obedient. Take that good heart that I put in you, that obedient heart that I gave you at salvation, and stop listening to the temptations from your enemies. Stop listening. So that is religion's quest up here in the board. Satan promotes religion in his world in order to frustrate God's plan for his children, which is to bring glory to himself by sanctifying them. This simple statement up here in the board, only God can sanctify man. That's something that needs to be a matter of fact in your soul, not a academic thing, but something that you live. You didn't sanctify yourself at salvation. Now what makes Galatians 3.3, 3, what makes you think you have the power, the dunamis, to sanctify yourself after salvation? But that's what Satan sows through religion of a ver- variety of sorts in the hearts, if you would, and souls of believers even. They are tempted by it. They're infected by it. Only God can sanctify man. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. Yeah. If you don't believe the promises, all the promises that we learned about when we studied the gospel proper, one of them being that he promises to sanctify you, that he promises to give you a new heart, that he promises to make you, to regenerate you as a new creature, that he promises, he gives you all the faculties to zip right along. And the only thing that keeps us back is our enemies, if you would, sowing doubt in God's promises, distracting us, a whole host of things, religion being the most identifiable one for believers, which... Really, religion's whole thing is what what Satan wants, which is for you to believe or accept that man sanctifies himself, even after salvation. So if you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. Okay, let's go back now to Romans 1.16 again. We'll press on a little bit. I'm almost out of time. I can't believe it again. Romans 1.16. So please, take the time. 
Look at what the Spirit's trying to develop in your, in your souls. He's really trying to set you free. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we see righteousness or righteous in two different forms. Up here on the board, we did just something brief, just dikaiosuna in the Greek is where we get righteousness. And there are three basic uses in the Bible for that word. It's either a characteristic of God. You know, he always does what is just and right, never wrong, unjust. His righteousness is consistent with his other attributes, part of his essence, so to speak. It also refers to, in the Bible, his method of salvation, which means he was righteous in justifying you when you believed. He was righteous in sending his son as the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, so that he could justify you. That was all done in perfect synchronicity with his justice. So his justifying you, his saving you, is righteous, the method in which he did it is righteous. That's how it's used as well. And then finally, righteousness is used to uh, describe imputed righteousness, which is man's good standing with God in Christ. As a saved individual, you have what we call theologically imputed. Imputed is a judicial term. That means when the gavel comes down, he sees you as measuring up to the standard. That's what imputed means. That has been imputed judicially to your account. That's why the Bible says God doesn't see your sins anymore. It's talking about the judicial reality that is associated with positional sanctification, if you want to get a little bit more theological on that, right? That's all imputed means, a fancy word that means it's a judicial term that says it's been rendered to your account. The gavel comes down, God says, you, my friend, are justified in my son's blood. You go to heaven. That's all imputed righteousness means. that sound right? Sound good to you? I shouldn't say sound right. Sound okay? Because we're going to press on, so. Robin. Now, with that said, we took a closer look at the original language here, up here on the board. And all I did here was just... Um, suggest you looking at it this way, the definite article, remember, which is the, actually isn't in the original language. Um, a righteousness from God is being revealed. That's uh, another way to look at that statement. I'm not a huge fan of quote-unquote corrected translations because they can get crazy. But there's a reason why there's a variety of translations out there. It's because the original Greek and English, they're not a perfect match. So sometimes it does make sense to look at a more literal translation so you have a better idea what the Greek words actually say, literally. It's usually clunkier than this, but this time it's really not. A righteousness from God is being revealed. Refers to a judicial, there's that word forensic again, a judicial forensic reality where God imputes, there's that word again, a righteousness to a believer. And we looked at Philippians 3.9, does not refer to God's righteousness specifically. It's a righteousness that 
he's given you, that he sees, that's been accounted to you. You've been made righteous. Okay? Philippians 3.9 And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So don't confuse the righteousness of God with the righteousness that we have specifically. It's a judicial or judicially, forensically based uh, righteousness. We amplified this because is anybody here going to walk out of here and not sin for the rest of their life ever since they've been saved? Okay, then you're not righteous. We amplified this point up here on the board. J. Vernon McGee on righteousness from God. The righteousness he, Paul, in Romans 1.17 is talking about is what God demands and it is what God provides. It is a righteousness that is from God. God solved the problem. And because Jesus died on the cross, the judgment was paid. And now that the judgment is paid, God is propitiated. Therefore, His righteousness, Christ's very righteousness, is now imputed to your account. Okay? It's all judicial. And that's how you think about those kinds of things. We might then read this verse more literally. Go to Romans 1.17. For in it... For in it, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. Now that's where it gets really interesting. And this is what was beginning to, what really did blow my mind uh, when I revisited it again recently. It's with that word is revealed. So a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. Well, what is that? Think about that. We're out of time, but think about that. I'll give you a little... Um, something to think about before I close, is revealed refers to the unveiling of the fruit of the righteousness imputed to believers from God at salvation. God sanctifies from faith to faith, for it is by faith that a man shall live as a Christian. In other words, the entire spiritual walk. You know, we have other commands, right? Walk by means of the Spirit so you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. You know, love one another, walk this way, etc. Do be a doer, not merely a hearer who deludes themselves, blah, blah, right? So we have all these other commands, but the baseline is really to live the spiritual life. Well, how do we do that? We do it by faith. And when we do it by faith, we reveal God's righteousness. In other words, He was righteous in saving you. Just like He's righteous in pouring out His grace now, that that issue's been cleared to sanctify you. And so his righteousness is revealed over and over and over as he continues to sanctify. He's, in other words, he's righteous not just in saving you, but he's righteous in sanctifying you. Does that make sense? He's righteous in both ways. And that righteousness that was imputed to you is a good thing, and that's really fruit that we're talking about here. And I'll, I'll end with this. I think that's enough to think about. And think about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when you think about this. For by grace, through faith, you've been saved. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. He gives you what? Saving faith. And it's upon that saving faith, and we'll read in... uh, 
Romans 4. It's the second time we ended up right in front of Romans 4 in my notes. We did it on Tuesday again, where it gets into, if you want, read Romans 4 and read what it says about Abraham. These things, faith, his faith was credited as righteousness. So only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.